Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the Violin Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Mogala, where I interview violinists from around the world. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. And if you haven't done so already, please be sure to hit the subscribe button for future episodes. My guest today is a violin maker based in Brattleboro, Vermont, who has made over 1,000 instruments and has received awards from the Violin Society of America. His instruments are played by various artists around the world in a variety of musical settings. Please let me welcome Douglas Cox. Uh, Doug, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the Violin Podcast today. How are you doing today? Oh, it's a, it's a pleasure. Uh, we have a, we're recording this on a beautiful, sunny uh, uh, reprieve of summer afternoon here in, in Vermont, so it's... Um, uh, it's great. The, the, the world is beautiful. Fabulous. Yeah. And um, I had the pleasure of seeing your workshop in person and you're like in the woods and it's a, it's a beautiful place to be creative. And uh, I'm sure I, w- I would love to talk to you about your, your workspace and uh, the types of violins that you make. But first off, for people who are not familiar with who you are and your work, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started in uh, becoming a luthier and how you started making instruments? Well, when I, I, I graduated from high school in 1966 and was not too keen on uh, going to college or doing something academic. And uh, I'd learned through model making that I love to do fine work with my hands uh, and have a, a musical inclination as well, although uh, I had barely started to learn to play the violin at that point. I uh, uh, joined a country dance band uh, playing first banjo and flute, but then I picked up violin to, to do that. So that was my in- introduction to the violin. So uh, to find some way to put my interests together, uh, I found my way to the violin making school in Mittenwald, Germany, which is in a beautiful uh, Bavarian Alpine village. Uh, 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 half of the year, snow capped peaks all around and uh, uh, crystal clear uh, streams going through. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think, uh, yeah, I, I, the the young woman women that I was interested in weren't necessarily in dirndls, but most of their mothers were. So it was a, just a very picturesque place to be off to. So uh, I went there uh, to follow my interests and for adventure. And uh, but without the uh, the commitment that I was going to be a violin maker, uh, it was it was something to do. It was something to explore, but. Uh, uh, you know, there were other uh, kids in the school, other other young people who came from violin families, and they were there to follow the their their family tradition. Um, uh, but I was I was there to explore, and uh, uh, was there for a couple of years. Um, uh, came back to the states and uh, uh, worked for J. Bradley Taylor, who. Uh, uh, was instrumental in my going to Mittenwald in the first place, and I 
uh, spent uh, what I thought was going to be a year in his shop um, just because I needed a job. And uh, that grew into 10 years and an awful lot of very valuable experience of seeing great instruments, uh, uh, working with uh, players of uh, all abilities and temperaments. Um, one of the, the keys to success as a violin maker is being able to uh, work with the personalities of players. Uh, so, so, so that was uh, great training. And uh, then after being there for the, uh, the decade of the 70s, basically, I... Uh, uh, because I still hadn't found anything better to do, a better way to make a living, I just kind of kept going and gradually uh, transitioned from doing uh, repair and restoration work, which was the bulk of what I was doing for Brad, uh, into building new instruments. And uh, uh, we uh, moved here to Vermont in 1983, uh, and that was about the point at which I, I, I transitioned to pretty much just making new instruments full time. Uh, one of the advantages or characteristics of working in a rural location is that there's not a lot of street traffic that comes through to uh, take you away from the bench. And uh, uh, so my, my career from uh, after the time in Boston, really focused on making new instruments. And uh, I've, I've done that with, with dedication. And uh, as with most things in life, the more you do it, the, uh, the, the, the better and easier uh, it, it becomes. Um, so that's the, that's the thumbnail. <laughs> that's fabulous. Thank you for sharing uh, all of that for our audience today. And my question for you is, was there anyone in particular that kind of influenced you into becoming a maker? As you said that after high school, that's when you were first introduced to the violin. But was there someone or a certain situation that encouraged you to make that step and pursue violin making school in Germany? Uh, um, well, uh, again, Brad Taylor, uh, who I... who also uh well i was living in, in new hampshire at the time which is where i grew up and he was a dover new hampshire native and uh, uh so he was my introduction in that way i think after that uh uh getting to know a number of very fine players who were encouraging in uh in making new instruments and uh uh provided both well both the the inspiration of great instruments uh, uh, understanding how great instruments work with great players uh, uh, Mary Lou Churchill was probably the uh, the, the most inspir inspirational she was just a very lovely person and just a hundred percent encouragement um, uh, Eric Rosenblith uh, James Buswell uh, basically the 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 uh, Boston Teacher Corps, uh, uh, Joey Silverstein, uh, you know, they were all people that, uh, that 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 took an interest in me and uh, uh, encouraged me to go forward. Part of that encouragement was making their instruments available to me to uh, uh, to study and to 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 learn from. And of course, for, for our audience who don't know who Joey Silverstein is, he's a legendary Boston Symphony Orchestra concert master um, who stayed many, many years as 
concertmaster. And also for a moment, he was a conductor for Utah Symphony, which I thought was also interesting. Great legendary player. Had that very nice, warm sound. I remember um, when I was attending school in Boston that he was a faculty member there. And he he had such wisdom like beyond like there was an entire studio class of Bach just talking about Bach sonatas and partitas and the way he approached the music and not to mention the way he approached sound was also very interesting and uh, Doug you mentioned that you are or you were studying these instruments of these of well-renowned players what were some of the things that you were looking for as you were studying these instruments and approaching uh, the bench as you made new violins? Well, I think too, well, uh, so uh, let me think. Uh, no, uh, uh, Joey had a guad. Uh, uh, the others I mentioned all have strads. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's uh, how do they work? What is a violin supposed to do? Uh, with the exception of one of the instruments that I got to do some restoration work, uh, uh, I, uh, you, know, you, you generally don't get to take the instrument apart uh, to see what is on the inside, but there, right. there are lots of, of non-intrusive ways to be able to get information uh, about the instrument. Um, so there's a pretty standard uh, 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 set of data points you know, that, 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 uh, that one can collect. But as much as anything, or at least what I come to understand is that it's not about any particular part. There, there isn't any secret. Or if, if, there, if there is a secret, it's that uh, uh, nothing is ultimately important, and yet nothing is, is unimportant. And, and what makes a violin great is when all of the pieces work together. And it's not as though... Uh, the arching has to be this way, the, the, uh, the thicknesses have to be like that, the texture of the varnish has to be like this, uh, but it's when all of those things work together. Uh, so that's, uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll add another, so, uh, probably the, the, the most inspiration or the, the most support I had moving forward was, was uh, J.B. Viom uh, in the uh, uh, it was pretty standard uh, in the, uh, so uh, many VOMs came through Brad shop when I was working there and most of them needed to have the base bars replaced or some other work done. So I had uh, probably uh, 20 or more VOMs apart on the bench and to see. Wow. That's incredible. Now, how what a well, what a great way to make a living! Just dissecting <laughs> these these really unique and antique instruments to study them. Well, th- 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 and this this was this was uh, uh, before Viom became uh, quite so pricey. Uh, so it, sure, it, it was still an affordable instrument at that point, and it was a very serviceable instrument. And uh, you know, having taken enough of them apart and looked at them, I said. Uh, I can do this, you know, that there aren't any secrets here. I mean, I, I, uh, I see the consistency. I see uh, what's here. Um, uh, so, so, so that was inspiring. That, that was supportive of, of uh, I can do something like that. Um, uh, uh, I'm not sure that, uh, well, I, 
I certainly haven't yet uh, approached uh, the uh, the marketplace of Viome, um, but in some ways that is my uh, uh, ideal part of making so many instruments is seeing uh, the production that came out of Viome shop and that and Viome's place in the market uh, and that that's largely there because the product is so well known that there are uh, a lot of them in a lot of different places and uh, so that was encouragement to uh, uh, that that not only could I do this, but that I would be a better maker by making as many instruments as I could. That uh, that the the incremental process of making each instrument a little bit better uh, takes on steam when you make a lot of instruments. If you don't make very many instruments, uh, you probably don't make any progress at all. That's um, true. Yeah, I think um, as a, in terms of content creation as well. Like I think you know you you find composers like Mozart, Mozart's, you know, compositions weren't amazing when he came out of the womb, right? You know, as he, as he grew older, he composed more. And I think it's about creating more and you learn throughout the process. I want to talk about, you, you mentioned data points. You said the word data points. That's a very mathematical, scientific kind of uh, terminology that you said. Um, can you talk about for our audience who may not be aware of the science and, and the mathematics that is involved in making an instrument and making a great sounding instrument. Well, I'm, I'm probably not the best person to talk about that, but sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, but the, uh, in, in, in terms of the data points, there are certain things that are measured. Uh, but one of the interesting things is how much, uh, the look and the feel, and I think the effectiveness of a great instrument isn't a fixed measurement, but it's how the line works together. Uh, so it's, uh, again, it's the, uh, the whole being greater than the sum of its parts. It's not that you get each of the little parts right, but it's how everything flows together. Uh, so, you know, I, I, don't re I don't know how many, uh, uh, you know, graduation or thickness uh, points I have that I work with, but it's probably maybe 50 for each the top and the back, uh, you know, that are measured. You've got the basic dimensions, you've got arching height, you've got how the purfling uh, sits into the channel and how the corners are shaped. Um, uh, uh, one thing that uh, I have to infer to a great extent in looking at old instruments is uh, what is the, diff the, the, uh, the, the density and the stiffness of the wood but that's something that I pay a lot of attention to. Uh, I don't think that there is a perfect wood or a perfect density. I, I actually take a great deal of pleasure in working with, uh, with woods that are quite different and figuring out how to, make, how to get the most out of, out of each piece of wood rather than finding the wood that's going to match the way that I make. Um, so, uh, and then uh, I, I uh, starting about uh, 10 or 12 years ago, I started doing a, uh, 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 acoustic measurement and evaluation. Um, and uh, so there again, for each instrument, there's uh, probably a couple of hundred measurements uh, that get made along in the, in the making process. Uh, it's kind of like a 100 point inspection. <laughs> <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, uh, I love I love that. Yeah, and I you you know of course there are certain things that you look for. Um, and I I know that you're a big fan of making copies of these 
um, these antique instruments of Strat, Stradivari and Guarneri, like the Guarneri del Jesus. And I'm sure um, if I, I don't know if you've made Viom copies, but I'm sure it's in, in your collection of Opus. Um, yeah. Right. So for the audience who may not even know that like, what's the difference between like a Stradivari copy or like a Stradivari instrument compared to a Guarneri, they just see a violin in front of them and it's just, it's just a violin. Yeah. Can you, in, can you talk about some of the, um, the, the unique qualities between a maker like Stradivari and Guarneri? Uh, Again, probably not. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm the, I'm the... Or not, or yeah, or like something that you've noticed in the, like in, in your, um, in your observations when, in your time in Boston, if you ever have come across those kinds of instruments. Well, one of, one of the main things that I learned in Boston is uh, how different great instruments can be, you know, of having an instrument that is, re- that really works and it doesn't follow any of the rules. So, so, uh, so that the 10 years in Boston was, uh, well, I was going to say unlearning, uh, but it was working away from the, 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 the German discipline, which was, <clears throat> this is how violins are made and, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a very self-assured, uh, uh, <clears throat> uh pattern there. And, and coming to see that it's, it's, it's more complicated than that. Uh, it's more complicated than that. In, in, in terms of, of how the different models work, well, uh, probably the choice of wood is going to, to be the thing that makes the biggest difference in the, in the final instrument. But um, the different patterns have uh, different proportions, mainly different arch uh, that uh, in uh, you know, following a Strad arch or a Guarneri arch, they're just quite different, and that's 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 going to give a different uh, uh, tone spectrum uh, to the instrument. Um, uh, Great, thank you, thank you for sharing all of that. And you know, you you you, you make copies of these instruments. Um, is there a particular copy that you enjoy? copying <laughs> like uh you know um well, well so for for my opus 1000 which uh for a long time i didn't that that seemed like a uh, uh an impossible dream or goal uh <clears throat> and uh, uh partially because of the uh the economic slowdown of of 2008 and uh having uh my work focused, uh, or having having less interruption, uh, 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 things have gone very well. I I, uh, I chose the 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 uh, uh, 1744 Leduc uh, Lake Guarneri pattern for that instrument. Fabulous, because, that, because that's the pattern that uh, seems to turn players on the most. And it has about as much personality as one can possibly put into an instrument. Um, uh, and uh, I've, I've, uh, I, 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 I just today had a copy of, of a uh, uh, 1720 Strad in the shop that I built uh, 25 years ago. I think uh, something like that. And uh, that I would... Uh, I might say it was a copy, 
it was actually a bench copy. I had the Strat in hand while I was building it, and uh, a lot of the things are right. Uh, these days, I don't. Uh, I, I'm beginning to think more about building instruments that are inspired by particular instruments rather than being copied. Uh, copied by my 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 sense of of the best instruments. Um, uh, uh, that I've been able to turn out are, are um, 50% the inspiration and 50% what I do with it. So uh, uh, they are clearly, you know, uh, uh, Lorenzo Storioni is, is perhaps my favorite maker um, uh, because of a kindred spirit feeling about the way that he works. Um, uh, uh, you know, but in, in, uh, in, 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 in doing an instrument there, I, I, I like them to be recognizable. I would like someone to be able to look at them and say, oh, this is on that pattern, or this reminds me of, of this. Um, but uh, it, it has to be 50% new and fresh and, and what I bring to it. Uh, so, I mean, there are times when I've, when I've uh, you know, worked where it's been 20% inspiration and 80% what I do, and and times vice versa, where it's 80% like this this the Strad copy that I was just mentioning, you know, where that's 80% trying to copy this instrument as closely as I could, and 20% uh, what was left over because I couldn't copy it perfectly, and so it was what I uh, had to had to bring to it. And I I, I think that, that just about halfway in the middle is is uh, is 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 my sweet spot uh, of when instruments, I think, turn out the best, um, and uh, um, and it's the you know as 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 much as I like to think, or one can think, well, I'm making a Strad, or I'm making a Guarneri, or a Guadagnini, or something like this. No, I'm I'm I'm, I'm making a Cox, and and it's a new instrument, and it's going to have a life of its own. Right, and that's what I was going to mention. No matter how much you copy an instrument, it needs to it needs to be your personality as the maker of your instrument. I think, um, you know, I'm grateful to play one of your instruments as well, and I know that it's um, it's very much you know your your work, and I and I enjoy playing on this instrument, and it's it's also your you know part of your voice that I get to play, you know. By holding the instrument in your hand, and um, and uh, well, man, so much to talk about. You know, <laughs> I feel like you can talk hours with this with, with instrument talk, and um, you know, it's totally random question, but I, um, you know, we're approaching the fall. We're approaching the fall and the winter time, and people who are listening to the podcast might be beginners, might be intermediates, or some are advanced and might not need to hear this, but. You know, you live in Vermont, which is very, like north uh, northwest New England. Very cold. <laughs> Winters are brutal in, um, especially where I am in Western Massachusetts. And uh, for people playing your instruments, or for people playing any kind of instrument, do you have any tips or any advice on how to keep your instrument in tip-top shape as we approach the fall and approach the winter? Do you have any uh, suggestions? Well, uh, avoid extremes uh, that, uh, you know, wood is an amazingly uh, living thing. 
Uh, it's not only living because it comes from a tree, but it's, it's living because it changes. Well, the, uh, you know, by the time an instrument gets to be 300 years old, it's pretty well stabilized and isn't going to be changing that much. But it probably still is, you know. And uh, uh, one, I, uh, I think of you know, the, the instruments when they walk out the door of my shop in someone's hands and, and are starting, you know, their, their career, uh, they are half done. You know, that what I'm able to do here in the shop and all of the making is half of the process. And the other half is going to be time and, and the playing, you know, that how an instrument played makes a tremendous, you know, difference that, the, that my personality is in the instrument, the personality of the people who play it is also going to be in the instrument. And then there's just uh, the things that I try to imagine and anticipate of what's going to happen to the wood, what's going to happen to the instrument if I make it this way. Uh, but that's just going to unfold on the instrument's own time. But, you know, uh, uh, back to your question, uh, particularly in the winter, uh, uh, you know, try to keep the, the, the humidity uh, of the instrument as constant as possible. Uh, and that, I mean, it goes both for summer and for winter. Uh, what I think is, is ideal if, if you can keep the humidity around the instrument down to 60% in the summer and up to 40% in the winter. Um, I don't particularly think it's prudent or necessarily good for the instrument to try to keep the humidity absolutely the same throughout the year. Uh, because, well, at least hopefully in the, in the post-COVID time, people are going to be going out with their instruments and playing in all kinds of places. And uh, you're not going to have control over the humidity 24 hours a day. That's true. I'm only thinking about all those wedding. I'm just thinking about all those <laughs> wedding musicians who are going to be rescheduled for like hundreds of weddings for next year. And, you know, just be, stay adamant about that humidity level, people, you know. <laughs> so, so, so just just uh, try to stay away from the extremes. Now, I think I think just just you know, do what you can to humidify in the winter and to avoid extreme humidity conditions in the summer, uh, if you can. That's the uh, that's the main thing. Uh, uh, everything else kind of flows out of that. I mean that that uh, uh, changes in the humidity can uh, can cause seams to come open, which then need to be glued. They can change neck angles and string height and. Uh, the fit of the post and all of these other things uh, kind of get get shifted around, um, but but mostly those aren't things that a player should should uh, uh, worry too much about. Um, I think you know uh, seams. It's it's a uh, that is the joint between the top and the back and the ribs is a, is a good thing to keep an eye on. Um, uh, and also things, for anyone who's listening and watching, if uh, if that does happen you know those tend to be actually quite costly repairs you know to do to fix open seams and uh, especially during the winter time i know that certain instruments like 300 400 year old instruments play people who play those kinds of violins they have to be very adamant about that humidity level so that way you know you're, you're pretty much you know you're still playing this antique that's been built for you know many uh, years ago so it's trying to stay adamant and I think a good suggestion you made is to avoid the extremes. I think, you know, trying to have a progression, um, like if the weather's going to be colder, is to 
slowly progress the instrument into that time, into that weather and kind of adjusting it. It'll, it'll probably adjust on its own, at least uh, in my experience with other instruments. Right, but, 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 but we just want it to adjust slowly. <laughs> adjust slowly, yes. That, I think that's the biggest part. And um, I want to transition into another topic that you, you may have or have not talked about, but someone on the podcast might, might wonder, well, does this person make bows? And I'm, I'm, I want to, I want you to uh, explain to the audience what the differences are between like a bow maker and a violin maker. If you have any thoughts on that, and um, I don't know if you make any bows. Do you make bows? I don't. You don't. That uh, uh, when I was working in the shop in Boston, I did basic bow service as as part of my working my way up. Up, up through the shop, and I like bow rehairs and right, right, and and replacing tips and doing some uh, uh, fairly simple crack repair and 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 and, and things like that. Um, and I thought that I should make a couple of bows just to understand the process, but I never did that. Um, uh, but uh, uh, bow making is different material; it's a different technology, uh, different tools. Um, so uh, uh, it's 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 just different, you know. And which isn't to say that someone who uh, uh, or that, that um, uh, yeah, it, it's 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 just different. So if if someone does both, they're going to have two different skills rather than one skill leading to the other. Uh, sure. Okay. The, the, the uh, the main thing that's con- that's constant between it is that it's the uh, it's the same clientele. So mm. that, you know, if you're uh, servicing bows and instruments, you can be a one-shop place, and that can uh, that can be a good thing. But in terms of of um, uh, you know being good at one does not give you much of a of a head start on being good at the other. And, and uh, so uh, I've made maybe half a dozen cellos in my life, but I basically decided that cellos are enough different uh, in the, um, that I've, I've stopped making cellos. So I, I just make violins and violas. Um, and, and there are other, there are other makers who make only cellos. So, so that's another place where uh, uh, things get differentiated. You also mentioned the word clientele, and it depends on you know the clientele. Um, we, when you're approached uh, from a player or from an organization to commission uh, a violin for this particular player, um, do you consider the person's playing? Do you consider um, well, what what are the what are the kind of steps that you go through in your head when um, when someone commissions a, a, a violin from you? Um, do you, um, yeah, I'll just, I guess I'll just leave the question there. Well, yeah, I, 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 uh, fortunately, I don't have to do a lot of commission work um, that uh, uh, I have uh, a significant inventory um, that being a maker and not a business operator, sure. uh, I, haven't, I haven't let uh, slowness of orders slow down my work. Uh, and again, my goal has been to make as many instruments as I can, not necessarily to uh, to sell as many instruments as I as I can. Uh, so uh, I do have inventory, 
Uh, and that makes it a lot easier because uh, when I was, you know, younger, uh, I was doing the, the, the commission order route and uh, that gets into so many uh, problems of language and perception uh, that have to get worked through and, and uh, it seems like they always get worked through in an imperfect way. Uh, whereas if someone picks up a violin and plays it, uh, then we can, uh, we can actually find meaningful language uh, that, that we can both understand based on, based on the playing. Uh, I, guess that, I guess that helps if you have a large inventory, you know what direction the player wants to go, like, because you have a, a, a wide selection. Right, right, right. Uh, and and uh, I'm probably uh, pretty much toward the extreme in uh, violin makers of working on a very wide range of instruments, uh, uh, big, small, high arched, low arched, uh, uh, just lots of different inspirations. So that uh, wide body instruments, narrow body instruments. Yeah, and, you know, while I, I think that that uh, again, it kind of comes comes around to the fifty fifty. You know, proposition that uh, I think uh, anyone should pick up one of my instruments and find me in it. Okay, well, this this feels and this plays like a Doug Cox instrument. I mean, uh, I would I would like that to happen, but I also want each each instrument to 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 have its own unique voice, and so so half of it is is the consistent me of who I am, who I can't help not doing it differently. And the other 50% is uh, what is unique and special about this particular model and choice of wood and, and uh, what's there. So um, uh, what was the question again? Um, no, it was just about, I think, I think it was all, all just about uh, commissioning violins oh, yeah. uh, from different violinists. If you ever right. done that in the past or if, there, uh, if you have done it, what was a checklist of things that you did work for? But you pretty much answered the question in saying that you really don't do that anymore. And let's say you just say what kind of instrument you're or what your ideal instrument or what your ideal type of playing, whether it's solo, chamber music or whatever the case may be, and then go from and then stem it from there right yeah no i i think i think those are the i mean the 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 uh uh you know first thing is uh a bright sound or a dark sound you know that that is one of the things that either makes an instrument work or not work uh probably the next is uh what is the bow technique of you know does the player play with a heavy bow or with a light you know with a with a with a heavy hand uh on their bow or with a lighter more floating hand uh, and that uh, takes things into very different directions. Um, uh, then there's uh, sort of r related to the heavy hand is that heavy hand leads naturally to uh, more raw power. You know, so, and this is the question of what kind of playing are you going to be doing? You know, are you, uh, you know, going to be on a concert stage in front of an orchestra or are you going to be, uh, you know, in a, uh, in a in a string quartet where you need a particular blend, uh, you're going to be in an orchestra where uh, comfort and and consistency of sound is more important than probably anything else. Uh, so it's uh, uh, I, I have a uh, an evaluation form that I use with uh, with players and with instruments that has I think eight different criteria, and uh, so. Uh, uh, tone, color, response, flexibility. Um, uh, there's there's a, a 
uh, sort of an undefinable quality of sound, uh, which is kind of like uh, uh, a fine cup of coffee or a nice wine. Right. Uh, Everyone's going to think of it differently. Everyone's going to say something well, different. Well, no, but, but, but there's something there that there is something very interesting and unique and that grabs you in the sound. So if, if an instrument has that quality, you can't necessarily describe it, but there is uh, 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 something that, that, <clears throat> that, that kind of percolates up. I, I, I have some sense of, of how to do that in different ways and what, you know, how the, the wood and the, the graduation works to give a, uh, give a different uh, quality to the sound. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, a, 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 an instrument with a high uh, quality quotient may lose on some of the other issues. Um, uh, well, which is the way this always works, you know, is that uh, uh, at least as far as I've been able to get to, it's always, uh, always a trade-off, but you know, that where we're, we're aiming to make the perfect instrument, you know, the one that scores 10 on everything. Um, Absolutely. That's always the goal. Yeah. Um, Doug, uh, b- before we go, um, there's one last question I want to ask you. What is the, the amount of, like, the, right now you just passed 1,000 uh, violins that you made. I think you are like at 1,020 based on your last Instagram post or, or something in that range. Um, what is the number for you? What is, um, how many violins or instruments for that matter would you, are you happy making? Like 1,500? Maybe the next milestone will be 1,500? That, I, I, uh, uh, 1,000 has crossed, you know, my, my mind several times over, over the years. You know, as a, that, that sometimes I felt as though I was on track for that, and other times I said, "No way." Uh, 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 well, I think um, uh, I don't have a number. I, I don't have a number. I think that uh, uh, I, I've heard uh, you know violin dealers or you know experts talk about Strad having made something in the neighborhood of 1200 instruments, you know, that came out of, well, he didn't make them, uh, but they, they came out of his shop. They were out of, his, right. uh, out of his workshop. Um, uh, um, I, I, I think that I, that I still feel the more, the, 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 the more the merrier, you know, that, uh, the more instruments I make, the better instruments I will make. Uh, at this point, it may be, uh, slightly downhill of, of I'm not sure they're necessarily going to get much better, but I think that if I keep working, they'll get uh, less good, less fast. Is that, is that... I guess I got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So the more the more the merrier. The more violins you make, the happier uh, people get to play on them. The more you know. I think that's. I hope that's... so. Yep. I I I uh, I certainly hope so. And I mean, I obviously wouldn't get to this point if. Uh, uh, if the work at the bench weren't a joy, you know, not to say that it's a hundred percent of the time, but uh, uh, enough of the time. And that's where life feels good. That's where uh, everything seems to come together. Uh, Enjoying the process. In a harmonic, uh, uh, harmonious way. Mm-hmm. Well, Doug, I I want to I want to thank you so much for coming on to this week's episode of the Everyday Musician Podcast. Um, 
how can people find you? I know that you're online, you're on Instagram. Um, can you sh- can you share um, where people can find, um, you know, how to find you? Well, I think the, the, the easiest and the most direct is coxviolins.com uh, that uh, uh, we try to have an attractive and uh, informative web uh, website. And I think most things... Uh, uh, can be found through that. There's an extensive uh, set of blogs uh, that I've written at various times uh, 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 with kind of general background information of, or, or following the process of particular instruments. Um, but that's, and in terms of getting in touch with me through the website's probably the easiest way. There's a, you know, there's a email portal uh, on, the, on the website. Wonderful. Thank you. And I will leave all of that in the podcast description notes for anyone who's interested in learning more about uh, Doug's violins. And Doug, thank you again so much. And if you like this episode of the Violin Podcast, if you made it this far, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Please make sure to subscribe, share the episode with anyone who might enjoy it. And we will have you hopefully in a future episode of the Violin Podcast. I think it'll be great to know... um, and maybe pick your mind a little bit more with maybe uh, more topics. <laughs> well, uh, uh, thanks to you for the, um, the, the, uh, the, the podcast and thanks to your listeners for making the world a more beautiful place through their playing. That's, uh, that's what makes my life worthwhile. So, appreciate thank, it. Thank you. Thank you very much.